All right. Well, thank you for joining us for our uh, inaugural Adventure Science podcast. Uh, this is a podcast that is uh, created by Adventure Science. I'm your host, Simon Donato, founder of Adventure Science. And essentially, we're an organization that takes athletes and pairs them with field-based researchers and conducts scientific or humanitarian projects in the field. And from this, I, I couldn't find a resource that brought together all of the best and brightest and most progressive adventurers, explorers, and scientists in a podcast. So I thought, all right, we need to do an adventure science podcast. And thankfully, I've been able to get support from a number of sponsors, including Merrill, Sunto, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Canada Satellite, and a satellite imaging company also based in Canada called Earthcast and Smith Optics. Well, We've got all the uh, introductory uh, words out of the way on my side of things, and I'm very pleased and grateful to have as my first guest on the Adventure Science Podcast, George Karunas. George is a longtime friend of mine. He's a fellow of the Explorers Club, fellow of the Royal Geographic Society of Canada, and he's also the host of Angry Planet. He hosted that television show for four years, and that leverages his skills uh, and notoriety as uh, Canada's biggest and best storm chaser. So without further ado, George, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks, Simon. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, yeah, it hasn't been that long since we saw each other last at uh, the Explorers Club annual dinner. What a great event at Ellis Island. Did you enjoy yourself? Oh, yeah, the, the Explorers Club dinner has got to be one of the sort of iconic New York events that happens every year. And for those who don't know, it's about 1,200 of the world's top explorers that get together for a big black tie fundraising dinner. And uh, this year we had, oh, geez, we was at Ellis Island, and we had Robert De Niro was there, and Renu Fines, who's uh, widely considered to be the world's greatest living explorer. And it was just, uh, just a wonderful event. Very cool. Yeah, it seemed that... Uh... He has a lot. He has his wife to thank for that title. She apparently wanted him out of the house quite a bit. <laughs> well, I can sort of relate to that. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice, nice. Well, um, yeah. Let's let's dive into it. I'm really interested in knowing, you know, where you got the spark for uh, exploration and adventuring. You know, where what what started this off in your early years? Well, it's weird because it, for me, it, it sparked and then dipped and then re-sparked again. <laughs> so like when I was a kid, uh, I was always into nature and science. I loved it. I, I wanted to either be a marine biologist or a paleontologist. I, I, I just loved that type of thing. And Jacques Cousteau was one of my heroes. Uh, then as I got a little bit older, I got into like Indiana Jones. So you combine those two influences together and you sort of <laughs> come up with a guy like me. Yeah. Uh, but then I got into music because I enjoyed music, and that's a good way to meet girls. At least I thought so at the time. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, and parlayed that into a career working in recording studios. So I moved. I grew up in Hull, Quebec, ended up moving to Toronto uh, when I was 19 or 20, and then studied engineering and started working in recording studios pretty much right away, and then did that for a number of years, recording As music, an audio engineer. bands. Sorry? As a sound or audio engineer? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, like, literally working with all kinds of musicians and bands and stuff. It was tons of fun. Loved it. 
and then ended up finding myself working in a studio that did sound for film and television. And so that sort of allowed me to understand how television worked, the behind the scenes of it all, the terminology, the lingo, the process. Mm. And it was during those years when I was doing that, bouncing from studio to studio. At one point, I was actually the technical manager of the biggest studio complex in the country, one of the biggest in the world. So I was like seriously into this. Yeah. But in the back of my mind, I still had that interest that like when I was a kid of science and exploration and all of that. And in the late 90s, 98, May of 1998, I took my very first trip to Oklahoma to chase tornadoes. You weren't, even, I, you weren't even 30 yet at that point. I wasn't 30. Yeah, but, you know, I was 28. So mm-hmm. that's a little on the later side of things, I would say, for getting okay. into, into a, a passion like this. And uh, I found a dude who was still a very good friend of mine. And he was an experienced storm chaser who took people out to go see tornadoes. So I, I said, I got to try this. Went down. Because <laughs> why not? Well, I met a get bunch close of my, to a deadly yeah. uh, event of nature. It's just, it was crazy. And as a matter of fact, what happened was we spent two weeks on the road, had very little success until this one day in north central Oklahoma, we had this tornado touchdown very close to us. It turned and started coming towards us. We had to turn around and get out of its way. And it just so happens that we had a television crew from National Geographic was tagging along. So my very first tornado experience was documented and was seen on National Geographic, which was just mind-blowing to me. And I just kept doing more and doing more, and eventually I decided that the purpose of my life was to travel the world to the most extreme places, document these forces of nature, whatever they are, and then share what I've seen with the rest of the world. And that has allowed me to continue doing that, quit my job as an engineer, and basically become full-time professional professional explorer slash adventurer, I guess you could say. It's a weird job description. I don't even know what to call myself. Yeah, I uh, I struggle with the same thing, I suppose. Although, you know, now I've uh, I've settled into the entrepreneurial life, so it makes it a little easier. But uh, yeah. so your very first uh, tornado, you had Nat Geo with you and they captured the whole thing. Now, were you dry? Okay, you've, you've got a Tell us about your vehicle. Do you still have uh, the golf ball? Oh, yeah. The, the my uh, I don't have a name for it. A lot of people name their, their cars and stuff. Well, I've named it the golf ball because I've oh, seen it. So yeah, it's, it's dimpled like a golf ball. It sure is. Uh, the 1999 Honda CRV. Yeah, I still have it. I I bought it brand new without ever test driving it. Drove it off the lot because I knew I wanted that particular one. And uh, less than three weeks later, I was drilling holes in the roof to mount all my equipment, my lights and antennas and stuff for all the (laughs) the equipment that I need for storm chasing. And it's been through hell. It's got 450,000 kilometers on it. And it's been in about a dozen hurricanes, including Sandy and Katrina. It's been in a hurricane or sorry, in a tornado. It has been beaten by hail, so much so that the hood, like you say, looks like a golf ball. I describe it as it looking like a jealous ex-girlfriend took a ball-peen hammer to it. Windshield's been <laughs> smashed out a bunch of times. I've driven it up across the Arctic Circle, onto the ice roads, and onto the Arctic Ocean. Drove from Toronto to tuk tuk uh and back. So this thing, is it's been through hell. I've sucked seawater out of the cylinders when it got flooded during Hurricane Ike. 
So I beat it like it owes me money, and it keeps coming back for more. I cannot destroy this thing, <laughs> no matter how hard I try. Oh, and I try. It sounds like uh, you need to talk to Honda about uh, stepping this up to the next level. Honda, if you're listening, I love your vehicles. I cannot destroy them, but uh, I'm, I'm, you know, challenge accepted. Send me a new one, and I'll try to break it. Exactly. We'll, we'll make sure we get this in the, the hands of the good people at Honda. Um, <laughs> yeah, speaking of sponsors, one of the things that makes this podcast possible, and you alluded to it, George, is as a professional adventurer explorer, is getting support from great sponsors and company companies. I've been fortunate to uh, have the support of Merrill, uh, Sunto, and Farm to Feet Socks. So uh, check those guys out. They're the ones who are uh, covering the cost of this podcast and helping adventure science uh, push forward and expand boundaries. So uh, thank you to, uh, to Adventure Science's sponsors. So George, we've, we've done some projects together in the past, and one of the uh, comments, uh, I'd even go as far as call it a mantra of yours, those might be your words, but uh, it made me laugh, and this was in Madagascar for our Singy exploration in uh, 2014, ask and pay. Yes. So, I love I love that mantra. It's a good way to get through life. It, it keeps things low stress, I suppose. Uh, tell me where that mantra came from and how it's helped you out through the years. Yeah, um, it's funny because I've done a lot of expeditions in a lot of countries. Uh, I think I'm approaching 65 countries now. Wow. And no matter where I go, no matter what I'm doing, if I'm in a desert or if I'm in the Arctic or in India or who knows, wherever you are, you can pretty much solve any problem with a simple two-step process. Ask and pay. <laughs> right? Uh, I actually got that from a, a storm-chasing friend of mine, Ron Gravel, a guy from Ontario here. We used to chase together quite a bit. And, and he used to say that. I don't know where he got it from, but I'll give credit where credit is due. That, that phrase originally came from him. And uh, I... I Always, when I'm traveling, I usually have about three or four different currencies, um, especially if I'm traveling to some far-off place. Uh, I just came back from Myanmar, where I was – when I got home, I think I had five different currencies in my wallet, because you just never know when you're going to have to have a uh, one of those ask-and-pay moments. And what currencies would those be? Well, uh, Canadian money, because I'm from Canada. I had U.S. dollars. I had uh, – local Burmese money, but then I was also passing through India and Thailand. So every country mm. that I was touching down in throughout the journey, which actually took me completely around the world because I just started heading west and just kept going, um, <laughs> I always have local currency. In this electronic world where we have debit and credit and chip cards and Bitcoin, cash is still king in most of the world. Right. Now, do you find that... Uh... USD saves the day more often than not. Does it hold more sway in some of these countries? Is that why you uh, typically bring it with you? It depends where you are, really. Some places will take it. Other places won't. Um, some places like euros or will only take the local currency. I've been to Congo a couple of times, and it's funny there because the local currency is just its disgusting. It's filthy. It looks like it's been dragged through the mud for 100 years. But they will, eat, they will gleefully take U.S. dollars. But the U.S. dollars have to be perfectly pristine. They can't be wrinkled or ripped in any manner. They have to be newer than a certain vintage because really? uh, 
counterfeiting is such a huge concern in, in Congo and other parts of Africa that uh, they have to really watch themselves. So when you get U.S. dollars for some countries, you have to make sure that they're beautiful and perfect and not wrinkled. It's weird. That but is I get a, it. an interesting tip that uh, you only get and learn through doing, right? Yeah. You read about it, that one. Yeah, that's one of the things you sort of learn the hard way or or by talking to experienced people that have been to some of these places. Right. Right. Oh, that's good. Um well, let's let's talk a little bit about uh you know, your years of hosting Angry Planet and uh, how you enjoyed that, some of the uh the highs and lows, bests and worsts that came from How many episodes did you say? 59 episodes? Uh we did 49 actually. Yeah. Uh we did 3 seasons of the show, 3 times 13 for OLN Outdoor Life Network uh in Canada. And that ended in from let me see here from 2006 until about 2009 or 2010 is when we did that, and then the show got canceled. But then it came back in 2000, late 2014 into 2015, because it was airing on Pivot TV in the U.S. as reruns, and it was doing well for them. They called us up and said, "Hey, would you guys be interested in reviving the show and doing another 10 episodes?" And I thought, but then Pivot TV ended up going under, and the network no longer exists. So we uh, we had no one to make the episodes for now at this point. But uh, yeah, it's been a, an amazing journey that show. It came about just in an odd way. I was working at one of these recording studios, and I got a phone call one Friday evening as I'm there at the studio, and it was a TV producer who uh, thought that uh, my life would make an interesting TV show. And I agreed. He had read about me in the newspaper, and we put together a pitch. And about six months later, we were literally traveling traveling all over the world, and each episode focuses on a different force of nature. So it might be volcanoes in Indonesia, or the monsoon season in Bangladesh, or rising sea levels in Tuvalu, or going to the coldest town in the world in uh, Siberia, in northern Russia, or, or taking a ship to Antarctica. You name it. We some of the places were just absolutely amazing. We were in forest fires in Australia and, and studying uh, the, the coldest town in the world, melting permafrost in Siberia. We went to Antarctica on a ship in the middle of the Brazilian jungle. We did just all kinds of crazy stuff, going to the Nika Crystal Cave in Mexico, where there are crystals 10 meters long, 55 tons, and the air temperature is... 52 Celsius. That's about 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Incredible. 100% humidity. Just the most extreme places on Earth. Yeah. Now I know that was quite the coup getting into that cave because it's a severely restricted entry. Yeah, and it took us basically two years, almost two years, to get permission to go there for one day. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, and it's now underwater. The 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 place was discovered 900 feet underground in a silver mine by accident in the year 2000. And they've been using gigantic pumps to pump the groundwater out of the silver mine so they can mine deeper and deeper underground. Mm -hmm. And recently, about a year ago, there was an accident. There was some type of flash flood and some pumps were damaged and part of the mine was flooded, including the part that has the cave. And looks like they're going to leave it. So that uh, chance to go there was uh, this little window of opportunity to go to what I describe as the crown jewel of Mother Earth. 
No kidding. Uh, it's uh, and I've seen the photos too. Absolutely incredible. Um. Well, I'm I'm interested in uh, you know some of the some of the most challenging experiences that you've had on these adventures because I've certainly had my fair share uh, through adventure science and you know anytime you push into the unknown or underexplored uh, you know you, you walk off the known map and into the unknown and you never necessarily know what you're going to find and sometimes there's not anybody to ask or pay you've got to figure it out yourself so oh absolutely are, yeah what are some of your uh, most challenging experiences out there uh the, the probably the biggest one um that i can think of and there, like you say once you once you're off the map and there's no one there to help when you're pushing new territory doing things that no one has ever done before it becomes exponentially more difficult because there's absolutely no place where you can research right. and probably the the greatest example of that in in what i've done well there's a bunch but let me think of my most my favorite one was when i went to turkmenistan um leading an expedition for national geographic this is in 2013 mm. and um in the desert there's a place called Darvaza, and the locals call it the doorway to hell. It's a 100-foot deep sinkhole that's about 250 feet across. They were drilling for natural gas, and the whole thing collapsed, and it was leaking this methane gas, which is the main component of natural gas. Mm-hmm. And they lit it on fire, and it's been burning for 45 years now, more than 45 years. And it's amazing. It looks like a volcano, but it's in Central Asia, where there are no volcanoes. And... <laughs> The the idea that I pitched to National Geographic was to go there, become the first person to ever set foot at the bottom, and gather soil samples to see if there's any extremophile bacteria living at the bottom. And the purpose was because there are planets outside of our solar system that NASA has discovered that have hot methane-rich environments. Right. And if we could find bacterial life at the bottom of this crater, it could give us clues as to where we should start looking for life outside of our solar system. So it was basically looking for alien life here on Earth. And no one had ever done this before. No one knew how to do it. I've, I've done a lot of volcano expeditions, descending down into volcanoes and getting up close to lakes of lava and things like that. So I had lots of experience doing things that were kind of similar, but no one had ever done this. Turkmenistan is an extremely difficult country to work in. It's basically like North Korea. It took close to two years to get permission to bring a TV crew in there, to do what we wanted to do. Um, We had to basically make it up as we go. We didn't know how hot the crater was at the bottom. We didn't know what kind of gases there were. So I had to have a full heat protective suit, fire resistant ropes, the kind that a firefighter would use, Mm -hmm. self-contained air, and trying to get air tanks filled in Turkmenistan is not an easy task because you can't not fly a lot of divers people. there <laughs> there's not a lot of divers in Turkmenistan exactly and it's funny because we we had these air tanks and they're built for firefighters and we went to the biggest fire station in all of Ashgabat and we brought the tanks in and then the firefighters there who didn't really speak in much English they recognized what we had and what we wanted and they were like oh come with us come with us and they took us to their brand new compressor beautiful compressor and the fittings didn't match ah right so these these little things that if you you, you can't imagine the problem that you're going to have when you're doing stuff that 
that no one's ever done before, right? It's not so much the things that you don't know. It's the things that you don't know that you don't know. Always, always. And especially working in foreign countries where English isn't the first language and, you know, the the in a, the discussions are, are a little bit more challenging for that reason. You oh, don't yes. get that extra information flowing through because nobody just nobody knows how to communicate it to you. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we had to have direct help from the US Embassy. They were a tremendous help and they told us that we were going to be spied on the entire time that we were there and we were we were told our hotel in the capital was going to be bugged and uh, when we were out spying on us with binoculars and things like that. So, yeah, it was just this, this weird unsettling place and uh, going there and, and literally stretching ropes across a flaming pit and then going out on pulleys and descending down, setting foot at the bottom and gathering soil samples, which was, it was epic. Standing at the bottom and looking around in this pit of fire was like being in a coliseum made mm. of flame. It was just unbelievable. So, I mean, did you feel uh, any real danger at any point? Or by the time you touched down, <laughs> did you feel you had you had run through the risk scenario enough times and uh, had some safety protocols in place that should things go moderately sideways, you'd be okay? I remember standing at the edge, looking down and thinking, what on earth have I got myself into? This this is so much more difficult and dangerous than I anticipated it going to be. But we spent a week out there, and we did a whole bunch of tests, and we sent special temperature probes out on ropes and found the coolest parts of the crater where we could descend and set up the ropes. And we, we did a flyover test where I went across on the ropes without dropping down. So we eased ourselves into it and learned a little bit more each day as we went. And eventually we were able to pull it off. I had a total of 17 minutes at the bottom. That's it. And the samples that we brought back, we ended up uh, sending them to the University of Illinois at Chicago, and they did DNA uh, sequencing. And we found several types of bacteria that were not found in the surrounding soil around the crater, only at the bottom. And they were not in the existing uh, database, DNA database, but they were very similar to the kind of extremophile bacteria that you would find in deep sea black smoker volcanic vents and hot springs at Yellowstone, things like that. So right, super a lot of, cool a lot of sulfides, uh, hydrogen sulfide down there, and uh, methane yeah. Uh, seeps. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. very interesting though, especially when you think, you know, where where does it come from to get there? It's a heck of a long way from the nearest deep sea uh, black smoker vent, right? Exactly, and that's the big question that I have: is that how did they get there? That first expedition was to discover if there was anything there, and it ended up raising even more questions when we did find what we were looking for. It's like, okay, well, the thing's only been burning for 45 years. That's not long enough for bacteria to evolve down there. They must have come from somewhere, but we have no idea where. Interesting. Well, that yeah, that uh, the Dozava Crater uh, expedition was, uh, was fascinating. I, I loved watching that one and uh, chatting with you about it. So you're also very well known for your viral videos and some of your antics uh, around volcanoes and more specifically lava lakes inside of the volcanic crater. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit and what drives you to get down to uh, places that make you sweat? Yeah, uh, it's funny because there's only – I'm a bit of a volcano freak um, along with storms and you know anything extreme involving Mother Nature – and there are five locations on Earth that have 
permanent lakes of lava. It's literally a boiling lake instead of water, though. It's liquid rock. And I've now been Terrible to four fishing, out of the five. I'm sorry? Terrible fishing in those lakes. Terrible fishing. Yeah, terrible, terrible fishing. And you don't want to fall in, trust me. <laughs> and there, a lot of them are very difficult to get to, but they can be quite spectacular. And uh, I did this one expedition to Ambram Island in Vanuatu. I've been there several times now. And it has just the most dramatic of all of them. It's just violently churning. And the video from that ended up going viral because it doesn't even look real. You can see me standing at the bottom of the frame. And this lava is just churning in the background. And it looks like something from a Hollywood movie or you swear that it's green screen or photoshopped. But no, it's totally, totally real. And while I was down there, I ended up taking a selfie and that selfie picture ended up going viral all over and ended up on the list of all the top extreme selfies and things like that. CNN did a big – they did a story on on the, the expedition down there. So, yeah, it was, it's just amazing. And when you're, when you're at the bottom – and let me tell you, it's hard to get to the bottom. It's a 400-meter rappel down. Wow. How That's, many lines did you use? Uh, well, we would, we'd have to run two safety lines and, yeah, so it's it's – it takes a long time to rig the ropes to get down to the bottom and we have to use special gasoline powered rope ascenders to get back out. And to give you an idea, 400 meters is about 1200 feet. That is deeper than the empire state building is tall. And once you're down at the bottom, you can walk right up to the edge and feel the heat of the lava and the sound of the waves of rock crashing. I describe it as, the devil's washing machine and it's like looking it's, it's it's so hard to me for me to describe unless you've actually experienced it because the heat is indescribable and the visuals are almost indescribable it's it's just amazing and i just want to keep going back again and again and again i want to go to all of them it's addictive huh it really is it's it's like heroin for nature junkies for sure so how many more lava lakes do you need to see to uh, complete the list? Well, uh, technically three, maybe four, actually, because there are five that are permanent. The, the, the last one of the five is in Antarctica, Mount Erebus on Ross Island, and it's very mm-hmm. difficult to get to. Um, but there's also there's one in Chile at Villarica. Um, there's another one in... Um, in Central America, in uh, in uh, Pacaya, not Pacaya, Masaya Volcano, sorry. And they come and they go, so I want to go to those ones while they're there. There's also a third lava lake at Ambram Island where the viral video was shot. I've been to the other hmm. two, but there's a third one. I've I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've taken some pictures of it, but no one has ever done a descent to the bottom of it yet. So Why is we're that? hoping because it's really freaking difficult. It's super hard. It's very narrow, very steep. It's basically a chimney of heat. Mm. And uh, my my volcano team and I, my friends from, from New Zealand, were planning to do a first descent at some point. And uh, that'll be really epic. I just don't know when that's going to happen. We have to get some funding together for that. Right. Well, I mean, that's... <laughs> Keep me looped in. That sounds extremely exciting, and uh, I can only imagine how spectacular the images would be. Um, so, what aside from the volcanoes, what do you see next 
um, over the over the next few years, maybe five years out for some of the big adventures or uh, projects that you'd like to undertake. Yeah, it's interesting because I I've been branching out more and more in the past few years. It started off with just weather and then got into fires and and you know volcanoes and Arctic and deserts and just remote places. And I just came back from Myanmar where I was uh, the photographer on an expedition that was a cultural expedition documenting the tattooed women of Chin State where these old women have full face tattoos and the practice is dying out with them because it was banned 40 years ago. So I, I, I don't know what I'm going to be doing five years from now. It could literally be anything. I might be in space. I might be at the bottom of the ocean. I might be at the poles. I could, who knows? Um, I can tell you what I've got planned coming up in the next few months, at least. Uh, <laughs> in the spring, I will be in North Korea. That is my plan, to go mountain trekking and camping in North Korea, basically before Absolutely. Donald Trump nukes the place. Yes. And uh, so that should be quite interesting. And then uh, I've got some stuff I'm doing in Africa. I'm guiding a photo trip for uh, Exodus Travels. They've uh, invited me to host a, a 21-day overland photography trip from Cape Town to Victoria Falls through Namibia and Botswana. It's going to be awesome. That'll and be then beautiful. Hopefully... Namibia and Botswana are both uh, stunning in different yeah. ways. But... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then I work a lot with the Weather Network as well, and we just, uh, we've just got some big projects hopefully coming up. Uh, I can't say too much about that yet, but uh, we're hoping for some really cool destinations and some really interesting uh, trips and expeditions with the Weather Network. And then possibly some more volcano work uh, later this year. We'll see. So I've got a, a lot of plates spinning on a lot of sticks right now, and we'll see what actually ends up happening. That is a very uh, ambitious and busy schedule, and uh, your wife's a good woman for tolerating that over the years. Yeah, I tend to uh, spend between 150 to 220 nights a year away from home, and uh, she's very tolerant. Uh, but she knew what she was getting into. I mean, we exchanged our vows on top of an exploding volcano, so I think she knew what she was getting into. Are you sure she heard every word of the vows? She might have missed <laughs> something in there, and uh, you know, didn't wasn't captured in the fine print with the explosions in the background. Well, she did say for better or for worse, so that's a pretty you know broad blanket statement. So that uh, is, you know, that is. <laughs> that's what I'm going with. Hey, you mentioned. Um, that you were the photographer for the Myanmar project recently. And when we were in Madagascar, you took some beautiful photos, uh, both night sky, in the caves that we explored, on top of the uh, razor-sharp singy. How did you get into photography? Uh, photography, it's interesting because I don't know if you know this, actually. You know, I've been friends for a while, but I'm not sure if you know this. I'm legally blind. Um, I did not know that. I probably wouldn't have invited you to the most dangerous place that I could think of on <laughs> Earth if I knew you were blind. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been wearing glasses since I was three, contact lenses since I was 14. Now I'm at the point where I have to wear contact lenses and reading glasses because I'm 40 <laughs> years old. And uh, yeah, basically without my corrective lenses, my hand is in focus maybe two and a half inches away from my eye. So my good eye is about a minus 16 or so, and the other, and the other, my left eye is even worse. So, so legally I am blind. Wow. So and that's, that's starting with a 2020 to go to minus 16. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly how the numbering system works. 
but uh yeah wow the, the, basically i'm i mean I, I know bats are not blind but i'm basically as blind as a bat and so <laughs> Uh, photography doesn't seem to be the thing that would come sort of naturally <laughs> to a person like me. But the thing is, with my corrective eyewear, I, I can see just fine. I can drive. It's no problem. I can see just fine. So so there wasn't really a restriction there. It just seems ironic when you first think about it. And I remember the first camera I ever got, my mom got it for me for my birthday. And I was in my, I was in my 20s, actually. And it was this little waterproof camera that I brought on vacation to the Caribbean somewhere. Um, and I, I had a lot of fun with that. And then I realized that, hey, if I have a proper SLR camera, then I can actually do better photography and I can take proper weather pictures. And the first thing I was interested in was lightning, right? As hmm. someone who was interested in weather and living in Toronto, we've got the CN Tower. CN Tower gets struck by lightning 70 to 100 times per year. And in order to capture that, you have to have a tripod and a proper camera and all this. And so I went out and I started getting interested in photography and basically taught myself. This is back in the film days. You guys remember film? <laughs> uh, you would have to take a bunch of pictures and hope that something turned out. And I remember nights where Made it more I, exciting, didn't it? Well, I don't know if exciting is the word that I would use, but certainly... Uh, expensive and frustrating because I would literally spend all night during a storm trying to photograph the CN Tower getting struck and then I would r run downtown from from the, the lakeshore or whatever run up to the to where I could find a place that was opening to get the film developed so I would literally be waiting at the front door for the place to open I would pay the extra to get the one hour of film developing so that I could see if maybe one of the frames that I shot on three or four rolls of film turned out with a lightning bolt in it. And man, I don't miss those days at all. I embraced digital photography when it came around just for the, just for the preview screen and the delete button. Was totally you, know, you could have just fun. stuck to portraits and landscape though, and your life would yeah. have been a lot simpler. You know what? I, my life could have been a lot easier had I chosen a different path. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I could have chosen to be a, you know, a bikini model uh, photographer, but uh, no, I had to choose weather, like being cold, being wet, <coughs> being in danger, flying debris, trying to find tornadoes. It's like super, super difficult. But at the same time, it's really rewarding when you're successful. So I've, I'm, I'm quite proud of the photos that I've taken over the years, and, and I've got tons of them up on my website. And it's interesting because this latest trip, as, as you were mentioning, it was um, photographing these women. And portrait photography is not something that I consider to be my forte at all. And that was what was uh, really interested, uh, made me interested in this particular expedition was because it was something I'd never done before. I wasn't really good at portrait photography. And so I got really good at it. I, I, I'm very proud of the pictures that came out of that expedition. And it forced me to find new ways to use the skills that I had in a slightly different way. We interviewed 184 women. And wow. let me tell you, after you've taken portraits of 150 <laughs> women with face tattoos in Myanmar villages, you start getting really creative because you've run out of interesting ways to photograph these women, right? Well, yeah, I look forward to seeing those photos. Now, I want to uh, move towards wrapping up here, 
But I want to do it with this question for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been in this game a long time, and it is your profession now. What do you see the future of exploration as on this planet or off this planet? And, uh, you know, what are, what are some of your thoughts about where exploration is going and what you've heard about exploration in the sense that everything on Earth has been done, we have to go to space? Right. Well, there's a lot to do in terms of exploration. The future is bright, I think, in terms of discovery and uh, and learning. Of course, we don't live in the golden age of exploration where, you know, the Columbus and Marco Polos and discovering new lands and new continents and conquering new worlds and things like that. That those days are over for planet Earth at least. Uh there's no new islands to find. So, but there's still places where people have not been that we have lots to to learn about the deep jungles uh caves undiscovered caves the deep seas space of course um and there's still lots to learn about the places that we have been to so i think for the future there's still plenty of opportunity for explorers to to make their mark um there's, there's never uh, another chance to be the first to go to the North Pole, the first to go to Mount Everest, things like that. Um, but there are still plenty of firsts out there for for explorers. Obviously, space has the biggest potential for exploration because there's just literally so much of it. But we haven't really explored a lot of space in terms of humans. I mean, we've sent probes to planets and things like that, but uh, it's been a long time since we've sent a uh, a human into space other than orbiting the Earth. Uh, I think in 1972 or 73 was the last time that a human was uh, on the moon. And so there's so much to do, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the first person set foot on Mars because we can send probes and and rovers there every year all day long, but that doesn't inspire people to want to explore themselves as much as seeing a person do it. People, people will always remember who Neil Armstrong was, right? So you may not be the best at something, but if you're the first, no one will ever take that away from you. And so the person who will set foot on Mars first is alive today. They don't know it. We don't know it. We don't know who that person is yet, but they are, I guarantee they are alive today. And so... How old are they? Probably middle school, I would say. Maybe, uh, maybe, who knows? I I don't know exactly when we're going to set foot on Mars first, but they're, they're... certainly uh there there's certainly you know one of the young people the the new generation of explorers and uh it's going to happen you and i are going to see this happen in our lifetime and i'm really looking forward to that day it's really cool that 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 event is going to happen in our lifetime i i was not born when uh neil armstrong set foot on the moon so i didn't have the opportunity to witness that live but this we should be you and I should be able to see so that that's really exciting but even here 
on our our home planet. I mean, there's so much that we can do here. There's so much in terms of conservation. There's so much in terms of uh, just studying and and preserving what we already have. And there's so much that we need to learn. And it's going to take explorers to learn those things, right? We're in the middle of a mass extinction event. These unfortunately, are, yes. Unfortunately, yeah. And this is this is a critical thing, right? We humans are having a tremendous impact on Earth, and it's the people that are learning uh, about the planet that are sharing that that are going to help save the planet. People only care about the things that they understand. They only understand the things that they have learned about, and they only learn about the things that they are exposed to. So... For the next generation of explorers, it is going to be critical for you to get your message and your research and your discoveries seen by as many people as possible. Luckily, we live in an age where that is becoming more and more uh, doable with technology. So I have bright hopes for the future, despite uh, a lot of the headlines that we see with loss of things like the EPA and whatnot and some of the legislation happening, especially in the U.S., but barring all of that, I think that we still have a bright future here on planet Earth, basically because we have to. We have no plan B. Yeah, and education not, and exposure, it, it has to happen. Um, you know, more, more children need to be exposed to it. More adults need to be exposed to it because, yeah, if they're not exposed, you're not going to care. Exactly, right? Exactly. You're not going to care about something you don't even know about. Right? Mm-hmm. So the more that people are educated and the more that they see and the more that they, the more that they uh, embrace and understand the importance of science, of discovery, of the natural world and how we fit into the natural world, that will make a huge difference in how people care about the place where we live because we have no choice. We have to, this is the only home we have. We can't move. Wise words, George. Well, uh, I think we're out of time here. I really appreciate uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Um, always love hearing what's on your mind and uh, you know the adventures that you're getting into. Uh, you've certainly been uh, a mentor and an inspiration for what I get up to. So, congrats on uh, on doing so much um, and changing course uh, with your careers. I mean, that's that's inspiring on its on its own because it's so hard to leave something that's stable and secure and venture off into the unknown which you've done um i wouldn't say with reckless abandon but pretty much with reckless abandon so uh (laughs) it's it's been great to chat and i look forward to when i can see you next it's been an absolute pleasure i look forward to going on another expedition with you well you don't have to worry about that there's plenty in the hopper and i'll uh, update you on those next time okay take care george have a great day Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of the Adventure Science Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science, you can visit us online at www.adventurescience.com. You can find us in the social media realm at adventure underscore sci for Instagram and Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook at Adventure Science. Technical assistance for the Adventure Science Podcast is provided by Olivier Hubert Benoit, and Adventure Science wishes to thank its sponsors for making this possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Suto, Canada Satellite, and Earthcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.